hi folks uh we're probably going to talk a little bit about mental health but i don't think it'll be anything catastrophic so hey there you've been warned also be warned that we have a house of animals and there is a non-zero chance dogs cats shepherds teenagers will wander in while we're recording so honestly the chickens are about the only ones who stay put anymore really kind of are uh, the other thing to mention is we swear a lot. Oh, yeah. And I don't see that changing for this episode. <laughs> so uh, that's why we have to mark it explicit, because the podcast host places are a bunch of prudes. So that's that. Welcome to Productivity Alchemy, episode 137. Here come the dogs now. It's been... Or it's being an exciting week for me. I'm on call this week. It's my last on call for like a couple months. I'm filling in for, or I'm covering for someone who is out with surgery. So I do not begrudge it, even though it's not really my primary job anymore. It's it's a great experience, and it gives me a little bit of time to work on some other things because I can't talk to the servers I normally work on. So you is, know, it's a thing. Is it something of a relief, uh, relief to be coming off? The thing, though, being uh, on call? It is, but it's also left me better prepared for the weekends I've got coming up, and I've got already got a reschedule because I was looking ahead, and oh yeah, my next on-call period is a weekend when I've got plans, so I have to go trade with somebody. No big. This happens all the time, and we'll work it out, but it is it is a relief to come off of the all right. Uh, you are on call for a week at a time during U.S. East hours, and that'll be happening again in two weeks or three weeks or whatever the rotation was when it was when I was part of that group. Now, um, like, all right, I can do this for a week, and then we'll get on with things, and uh, it it isn't a big deal. So you had an exciting day, though. I did. I did. Now, we talked last week that you were going to have your appointment for an ADHD evaluation today, and you did. You want to tell us about it? Yes. Uh, well, I uh, first of all, um, to the surprise of probably no one. No one at all. I have the ADHD. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh so for anyone who is sort of you know nervous about getting screened or whatnot it was really very painless um it's not like you know they they yell at you or anything um what happened was i went in and this was uh, this was not uh we were out of network for our particular insurance because life but uh this was the, um, uh, I just went to a primary care facility that had, uh, I think, basically a behavioral screening person who comes in and uses their office space. And I, I literally booked it through my primary care physician. I went into my doctor and said, I would like to be screened for ADD. She's like, okay. And <laughs> I, your poor doctor. Yes. And then the, they sent me. No, she's out of it. She retired or moved to another thing. Yeah. So now I have to break in yet another doctor. Uh, <sighs> anyway. This is exciting because doctors are uh, often not prepared for the full extent of the Ursula experience. Uh, 
I, I live with you, and I'm not always prepared for the full extent of the Ursula experience. Let's be honest here. Yes, uh, this poor behavioral screener got to learn some really fascinating things today, but we'll get into that. Anyway, so I booked through, I basically said I would like a referral. At I went to the doctor. I think I have ADD. Can I get a referral? Uh, it took me five years to remember to do this, so don't beat yourself up. I went to, they gave me a referral. Uh, actually, first they gave me some paperwork, which took me four months to fill out because, oh my God, I want an ADD screen and you give me forms to fill out that have to be sent in and require asking other people to fill out forms. Jesus Christ, did you not see what I wanted to be referred for? Uh, I sent those in. They uh, And finally, after four months of uh, Kevin nagging me and Shepard, you know, making a spreadsheet or something calendar thing it's a calendar yeah which i firmly don't look at uh i finally <laughs> got it done in a fit of of executive function and sent it in and then they were like you have to put your name on it and so i did that and then they finally got me an appointment and it was great so I went in, and they were all, okay, you need to fill out these forms. But this is a very high-tech sort of clinic, so all the forms you just fill out on a computer screen. It's like click the thing, and then uh, you just click boxes and type your name in and give it to them, and which is great for me because, you know, more tech all the time. And I had to do an anxiety screening, and I was like, are you sure you want me to do this because I'm here for an ADD test and she's like she, she asked for you to do that and, and that was fine because i'm also very anxious so you know it wasn't like it was a problem uh so i did that i went back uh a nice woman did not have my childhood screening thing apparently that hadn't come through that was probably my fault somehow um probably I didn't have one for me because i never got it done uh no it's okay carlotta did oh okay yeah uh Carlotta did it, and that was all they needed. I have no idea what she said. Probably she just wrote on the sheet of paper, please treat my friend. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, uh, uh, and she scored it, and it was, it was, there are little, like, numbers, um, but she didn't tell me what any of them were. And then she started asking me questions, and for the most part, and, and she said several times, you know, an hour is really not long enough to get everything we need. And I'm like, you know, I understand you are you are being hamstrung by how much time you're allowed to spend. Uh, so, and you know, questions like uh, about the anxiety. You know, are you? Is there something specific you are? Uh, obsessing over, are you afraid of, you know, do you have thoughts of, of death or whatnot? And which I don't. And, um, do I have thoughts of harming myself or others? I don't. I'd have to apologize too much. It would just be too exhausting. Truth. Um, and writing down things and, uh, and then she asked me how my time management was, and I don't know what happened, but by the end of the conversation, end of it, I was talking about giraffe sex, and then I had forgotten what the conversation was. And what the question was, and she told me I had clinical markers for ADHD, and she said clinical markers for ADHD like four times, and she kept looking down at her notes and looking at me, and um, and then some of the other questions were like, uh, uh, do uh, it, is my distraction caused by anxiety or am I dist or forgetfulness caused by anxiety or distraction? Like, am I forgetting things because I am panicking about something else or am I forgetting things because 
Uh, to take an example completely and totally at random, I saw an interesting butterfly and then I wanted to take a photo of the butterfly, so I got out of the truck to take a photo, and then I realized the dogs were in the backyard, so I went into the backyard to let them back in the house, and then there was a weed, and then I was pulling weeds, and it was 20 minutes later, and the truck was sitting halfway down the driveway with the door open. Uh, so anyway, oh. yeah, there wasn't an anxiety issue there. I think you missed that, Kevin. <laughs> uh, you You talked about blowing through the red light. Uh, yes, yes, and and then I was like, well, I did get distracted, and I uh, uh, I blew through a red light because I was thinking about werebear erotica. Um, I wasn't not like purely. I was thinking about it as a phenomenon, and she was give this credit a woman all the credit for professionalism. She was like, you know, okay, that sounds like it was distraction, not anxiety, and I'm like, well, yeah, but werebear erotica is a whole thing. And then she listened to me talk about werebear erotica for about half a minute while she made notes. Um, there was some underlining about that whole <laughs> point, so I, I think that Werebear Erotica sealed the deal in some ways. Uh, and then... <laughs> And then she, you know, and then we were talking about time management. I was explaining about the beautiful rut and longtime listeners. You are all aware of the beautiful rut, which is where I get into a groove and I do my thing and there's nothing else I need to do that day. And it's beautiful. It's, it's, I know exactly what I'm doing all day. I don't have to do anything else. Uh, and stuff gets done. I love that. That, that is how I get a lot of the writing done. It is the beautiful rut. Um, as we say, a groove is just a rut with better PR. So Truth. And uh, so I tried to explain about that. And then I explained about how travel disrupts some of these things. And she asked if I was anxious about travel. And I was like, it's not so much anxiety, but I see this like vast looming. It's sort of, it, it's sort of in my head in the distant future as a thing that is, is, there sort of sucking energy towards it and then i explained about going to tibet and then i got distracted talking about the intestinal parasites in tibet and then she like set her pen down and was like okay i'm actually concerned about this parasite thing if you had that treated and i'm like well i tried but the doctor didn't know what to do with that because she had no idea what was there so uh i just had my friend who was a shepherd dose me with ivermectin because that's a human dose which in retrospect is maybe not a thing you're supposed to admit to your doctor i don't know but uh and then i was explaining how the interesting thing about tapeworms from that area of the, the world is they insist that was the word i forgot i kept saying engloped no they insist and so actually, if you get one in your brain, it's much safer because they insist and they never come out because they don't have the uh, the triggers because we're not the optimal hosts. Uh, but if you get one in your spine, it's very dangerous because the cyst can uh, compress your spinal tissue. So it's actually much safer to have an insisted tapeworm in your brain than in your spine. And uh, I was explaining this to her, and she was getting the look that happens sometimes when I explain things to people. And she was like, wow, the more you know. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I could have one of those stars following me around, really. Yeah. Uh, so it turns out this was the fascinating thing. I always thought that I probably had the just the ADD. Actually, I always thought that I did not have anything and was just a terrible, lazy human being who had glommed onto this because it was an excuse for my, you know, terrible laziness. And uh, that I was probably just using it because it was an excuse and uh, didn't really have it and other people have real problems. But 
if I had had it, I would have thought I had the ADD part, not the ADHD. It turns out all this tangent and mad gesticulating talking and the, oh my god, this is super exciting, let me tell you this thing I just learned, is how hyperactivity manifests in those of us who are not small boys. Ah. Because women and those assigned female at birth are socialized to not squirm. We are told to be good and not do that with much more intensity than uh yeah. than boys are. Yeah. And so uh I am in fact apparently extremely hyper. It's just I can sit still and not get up in class and wander around. See also let me tell you about potatoes, you know, my mad enthusiasms for things. <laughs> the fact yeah. that yeah. Uh, a you cannot leave a label on a bottle within five feet of me or any other small object I could fidget with. The foil caps from wine drive me crazy because I'm watching her fold and crinkle them. And I'm like, those those can be folded into sharp edges and one of these days she's going to cut herself. For a while, I had a job where I had to sit at a desk, and this corresponded with, um, because I had to be professional and all, I learned to fold origami cranes out of post-it notes, and so in lieu of, of fidgeting, I would fold origami cranes. I had hundreds of origami cranes. Oh, I bet. That whole fold a thousand cranes to grant a wish. Yeah, I should have had genies popping out of my ass by that point. Um, anyway, so um, I apparently have the ADHD. And, and it was painless. I mean, and then she went through the quick history, you know. Uh, she asked me if I had any siblings. I explained that I was an only child up until I was 20, and then the accident with the herbal supplement, and my mother, and the 20-year-old brother. And um, and she had to stop and ask some questions about that, not in the I'm a doctor <laughs> way, but more in the what the ever-loving fuck way. <laughs> And, uh, <sighs> yeah, that that was that was my reaction. Uh, and but he has ADD, and so does my mother. She's diagnosed with it, and she's like, "Well, this is like ADD has one of the strongest genetic uh, linkages we know of. One of the the if if your family has it, it is much more likely you have it." And I'm like, "Oh yeah, oh, cats. Sorry." Yeah. Uh, I'm like, "Yeah, Orange. well, they both have it." Sergey's uh, allowed to exist, you know. And uh, if I had OCD, I do not probably have OCD. Uh, my kid brother does. My mom does. I uh, I don't get any of the ritualized behavior. So if I do, it's in some it's manifesting in some other fashion. Uh, but I also have generalized anxiety, which we knew. So a lot of it is sorting out the issue of generalized anxiety from the ADD. Yeah, and. I'm like, yeah, you know, with the anxiety, the problem is I don't really think it's a me problem. Like, if you looked at the universe lately, and she's like, oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> so we're getting a lot of that. People, in fact, she was like, yeah, we're getting a lot of that. People are anxious, and everyone around them is anxious, and we infect each other with being anxious, whether well, yeah, it's, it's a, about politics or climate or... Yeah, it's a terrible feedback loop. Whatever, yeah. yeah. She's like, so yeah, the... the Anxiety, uh, you know, uh, she's like a lot of depression and anxiety we're seeing lately is 
there may not be anything wrong with your brain. <laughs> it's <laughs> well, she didn't say it like that, but you know, she was like, a lot of what we're seeing is the world is really is really wearing on people and yeah, we're all yeah. infecting each other basically with anxiety and she's like and he goes too far and it causes panics and it doesn't need to i think she was very incensed about the coronavirus thing um incidentally i was in a doctor's waiting room full of people carrying masks and like 10 signs about the coronavirus so uh uh yeah yeah anyway um yeah, I kept forgetting the question and the thing, too. That might be why she was underlining things. But yes, her diagnosis was... Uh, well, for, also, she asked what I did, and I explained I was a writer, and that I worked on five books simultaneously in case I got distracted on one. And she was like, it seems like that would be difficult to switch between. I'm like, not really. No, she's like, horror and children's books. I'm like, oh, no, very similar. I and fantasy. If, yeah. And fantasy. Although... I don't know if she believed me about the horror and the children's books being very similar. Uh, but anyway, I, at the end of the day, she was like, you, you, you are clinically significant for generalized anxiety uh, and very clinically significant for the ADD. But as she pointed out, I have a lot of coping mechanisms in place. You do? Uh, and this was interesting because apparently the coping mechanism most people develop when uh, – with the whole, you know, I am so excited about this thing I just learned, let me tell you about this fascinating thing I know, is that they realize other people aren't interested and they stop talking about it. Okay. Which never really occurred to me. Um, I just uh, – uh, this sounds extremely egotistical. I don't know how else to say it. I just took great pains to become sufficiently interesting when I talk that people are unwillingly fascinated despite themselves. And she's like, "Is is do you go off on tangents a lot when you talk? And I'm like, they will put me on panels at a convention where a room full of people will come just to watch me do this for an hour, okay? <laughs> and... Uh, and people are still mad that that we haven't had a chance to do Sean and Ursula talk about things, maybe possibly frogs again. again. Yeah, that was the standing room only panel. Uh, oh. Anyway, the yeah. So um, I have just my coping mechanisms, eccentric as they may be, are that I have just arranged my life so that I am surrounded by people who are used to me. And and this is the thing, she kept asking questions like, does this interfere with your family life? And I'm like, no, there used to be. Does this interfere with your social life? Well, no, all of my friends know I'm like this and they like me, so it's not an interference. I've just, <laughs> I mean, if they didn't like it, they wouldn't hang out with me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I imagine some of them are probably like, Ursula is fun but exhausting after an hour or two and I need to go lay down. But they keep coming back. So, uh, and apparently this is not the coping mechanism she was expecting to hear. <laughs> I don't know. Um, the Yes, conventions like book me in a room to do this so that other people can watch is is not how most people cope with that. Uh I was talking about this on Twitter, and someone said, no, most of us joined the SCA, so be grateful you didn't have to get a new wardrobe to do it. Oh, dear Jesus. And also a fascinating thing that stunned me and kind of weirded my brain out. 
uh, someone, a very nice person, uh, uh, wrote on Twitter, you know, my son loves your Dragon Breath books and he has ADHD and anxiety. And the way that Danny Dragon Breath has these enthusiasms was super familiar. And I'm like, oh my God, I wrote an ADD character without knowing I was doing it. You you also wrote an anxious character. I think you did that on purpose, though. Uh, with Wendell? With yeah. Wendell, yeah, yeah. But also, I just uh, typed this in all caps before turning my tablet off to focus on the podcast. Does Pastor Drum have ADHD? Yep. Like, okay, let me rephrase that. Does everyone else on Earth know that Pastor Drum had ADHD except me? Yep. Yeah. Well, the reason I talk about these things in public is because frequently there are people who do not realize this. For example, about the whole hyperactivity being the talking a lot, uh, I had someone going, I thought you knew that and that's why you got tested or I would have <laughs> said something. And someone uh -oh. else saying, like five people going, wait, that's how it is? I've always been told I wasn't hyperactive, but I do this. And a lot of them were women or assigned female at birth, so mm -hmm. you gotta wonder. Yeah. Um, because a lot of it is socialization. The so the the manifestations of something in an adult woman who has had to arrange her life so that she can live are going to be wildly different than in a six year old boy who does not need very elaborate coping mechanisms. Uh, around, you know, writing novels and things. Yeah. So that brings us around to next steps. Yes. Uh, and this was a thing where she was like, okay, you know, basically she was like, it's very obvious that you have both these things. <laughs> you are very medicated for anxiety. And it's true. I am on heavy duty anxiety drugs. Oh, yeah. Um, which they probably don't need to be quite as heavy duty as they are, and I would actually like to back it up a step, but the problem is my insurance will not pay for the name brand of the stuff that works for me. The generic sucks ass. Uh, it's known to suck ass. The, um, see, this is why we don't get the, we have to have the explicit rating. And despite the doctor sending them notes saying my patient does not tolerate the generic, the insurance company is like, well, she's not allergic to it, so she can suck it up. Uh, so they put me on the other one that was even stronger stuff, Pristique, which is like the super effectser, because it didn't have a generic. And then there was a generic, and then I just started paying it out of pocket. But it turns out that that one, for some reason, is cheaper than the name brand of the stuff that really works. So it's all very stupid because I am probably over-medicated for my condition, but, like, this is the shit you give people who have severe PTSD sometimes. Um, yeah. But it's what I can get. <laughs> and it's what works. And it works, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's yeah. just, it, it's it's not that it doesn't work, don't get me wrong. Works great. It's just I do not have the energy I would like. Anyway. Uh, so she asked me straight up, she's like, look, you have these, uh, or you have, she didn't say you have these. She said, you have the clinical markers for these things. She was very clear on the, the, you know, not saying I am diagnosing you right here, but saying you have the clinical markers, but she said clinical markers for ADHD, like four times while making direct eye contact. <laughs> <laughs> and, okay. So, uh, 
she's like, what do you want from this? Like, because as it is, I could go on with life very easily without any other treatment because I have organized my life to accommodate uh, my uh, neuroatypical function, which still weirds me out that some of those things are atypical. Like, why don't you just everybody should get excited and tell each other about dinosaurs and ether parties and anyway ether parties amazing okay back on track back on track no this is really cool oh lord the the early 1800s like the 1830s they just discovered ether and also nitrous oxide they did that a little earlier and they didn't know yet what it was good for so they used to have ether frolics where they would just like fill a ballroom with ether gas and people would get high as fuck and sort of you know frolic uh and then somebody realized that if they fell down the stairs during an ether frolic it mm. didn't hurt and that's when they learned they could saw off your limbs by knocking you off uh, with ether so anyway, uh, what, what was I saying? Next steps. Right. So I have arranged my life so that mostly I function just fine. And this is a very, I am very lucky to have done this. Uh, this is, some of it was, you know, hard work. I'm not going to lie. A lot of it was luck. Things fell out in my favor. Uh, I don't have to work a nine to five anymore, which is good because I've definitely gotten worse as I got older. Uh and oh i'm getting distracted again uh the uh, okay what what did i want and part of the problem is that one of the nice things you get if you have adhd is occasional bouts of hyper focus and largely i think because of the meds i'm on i can't do that anymore um it's it gets harder and harder for me to read a book for more than 15 minutes at a stretch um, I haven't sat down to do a big painting in years. It's just I, I am lacking the ability to concentrate to that extent. And I would love to be able to do that again. I would like to be able to do some big paintings. I would like to sit down and read a book and uh, not have to stop every 10 pages, play a round of solitaire, wander around the house, check Twitter, and maybe read part of another book. And she was like, okay, well, we can try medicating you. And uh, I'm like, if there are meds that will do things, that would be great. And also, if some of them would reduce the anxiety, that would be even better because the two are certainly comorbid. And uh, the one feeds the other because it's like, uh, I'm trying to think of an exa- of a way to explain this. Um, if you have anxiety, you're like, stuff could go wrong. If you have ADHD, you're like, here's 8,000 things that could go wrong. Right. And anxiety, the manifestation that I usually get is, okay, if something's going to go wrong, how will I fix it? And ADHD comes in and is like, here's 20,000 things that could fix it. Let's do them all right now. And, and then, you know, it's like, no, okay, obviously I'm not going to do them all right now. It's like, okay, but what if we did this and then this and then we did this and then – and. 20 minutes later, uh, my brain is convinced that the solution is raising edible dormice in terracotta pots in the garden to withstand the coming apocalypse. Uh, this is, uh, is not, not, su- ideal. not no. super helpful, but uh, although Shepard did find me a line on edible dormice, God help us all. I think the rodent import laws probably stop that. I hope they stop that. It's not that we, we encourage her, but we encourage her. 
anyway, um, so now I'm getting, but I have to tell you this diagnose it, it's as if a great weight. I feel giddy. Like I'm actually, my brain actually has this thing. I'm not just like lazy and weird and terrible and, you know, yeah. And uh, it's amazing how anyway okay there I sorry I got distracted there were a lot of questions you know childhood etc uh interesting ones uh were you ever in the military and uh I was not I explained I was a navy brat she's like okay did you move a lot and then I explained about the moving like 20 times before I was 25 and she was like that's a lot uh, that that's really a lot. Yeah, you, this this house is the longest you've ever lived anywhere. Yes, the, the, this is the longest I have ever lived in a place. And uh, every now and again, my brain is like, so we're going to light out and move to like New Mexico now, right? And I'm like, no, no, it's cool. I built a garden. We're fine. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm very good at moving. Anyway, um... Questions, next steps, medicine, appointments. Right, right. Uh, uh, history, <laughs> history. Uh, so went through some of that, you know, um, nothing like super invasive. Uh, did history of abuse, no. Uh, drug abuse. I did a lot of hallucinogens in college. Um, Who didn't? Apparently my therapist, the, the, oh, the screener. Yeah. Well, I don't know. She looked at me. I was like, what? <laughs> Everyone did. We lived in Oregon in the 90s. And then yeah. she asked if I'd ever been a therapist. Speaking of Oregon in the 90s, and I explained that I was not opposed to therapy, but the first time I had gone to a therapist, um, when I was had, was going through an angry young pagan phase and my mom decided I needed to go to a therapist, uh, oh, was no. uh, it, it went great for about two episodes, and then the therapist tried to recruit me for a cult, and uh, that didn't go so well. <sighs> And honestly, therapy is, we didn't have a good track record. My mom went through another therapist uh, that her church recommended who told her she was a victim of satanic ritual abuse. And uh, honestly, uh, yeah, Oregon in the 90s, not optimal on the therapy department. Mm. Anyway, yeah, so you could see this poor behavioral screeners, like <laughs> the desire to ask more worrying with the desire to <laughs> never ask again. Uh Anyway, uh, it is an expression I am familiar with. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, next steps, I am going to... I, I went and I made the appointment immediately. Go me, because if I had not made it in the next ten minutes, it would not have gotten made for the next six months. I uh, To go back to my primary care doctor and say, here is my the results of my screening, which says that I may have the ADHD. Can you give me a drug for it? And we will see what happens. I would like something because if it'll fix things, great. But as I tried to explain, I mean, I have so many coping mechanisms in place that it's kind of okay if it doesn't. I, I can function like this for the rest of my life if I have to. But my super optimal would be like, okay, it turns out it's all the ADD and I can get off some of the anxiety meds that make me tired. Yeah. <laughs> that would be fabulous. Uh but, you know, if I can't, uh, my life is pretty good as it is. I, I do fine. Um, anyway, but yes, I am so super hyped about it. I feel like, wow, this is awesome. I actually have the thing. 
it's really remarkably liberating to actually have the diagnosis. Uh, yeah, it really is. Uh, with with several things. So, and <laughs> on another note, uh, things we are going to talk about. We're actually going to talk about your process. Yes, we had several questions about that, but we're not going to do it right now. We're going to take a quick break, and we will get to that right after this. Results of the Twitter poll are in, incidentally, and everyone thought that Pastor Drom had ADHD turned up to 11 and assumed that was a canonical choice I had made. (laughs) (laughs) So we had a couple people ask about your process. Yes. And so I'm not going to say, well, what is your process and wind you up and point you in a direction. I mean, I could do that. It would be fascinating. We would be here for two hours and you would have learned a lot about iguanodon thumbs. Well, um, so what I'm going to do, just in case, is I have my time cube here. Seriously, look up iguanodon thumbs. And I'm going to... There we go. See, you hear my time cube? Yeah. All right. I'm setting it to 45 minutes. We have a maximum of 45 minutes. It will beep at that point. Okay. I should have done that for the other one, too. (laughs) Sorry, I'm a little more manic than usual today, and I'm not sure if it is that, oh my god, I get to call it manic, and then I don't immediately go, no, no, I am I am co-opting terms of mental illness, and I don't have that because I have ADHD, so I don't know if I'm super relieved or if I just feel like I have license to be giddy and a weirdo. Anyway. I'll settle down soon, don't worry. I know. The questions about process i'm gonna start with the idea that part of your process is wedded to your adhd or at least your coping mechanisms how do you decide which piece you're going to work on first or what what you're going to try to make your main focus for the day uh it's whatever i know what happens next and we did an exercise a couple years ago where I said, well, I don't know about the storytelling, and you started pushing me on it. The The question is always, and then what happens? Yes. Or, or and why is this happening? Right. And uh, I, I work on like four or five manuscripts at once, and that is, that is definitely an ADD thing. That is. Blame the cat. I blame him. Uh, it is, because uh, uh, the usual suggestion is that, no, don't ever do that. You need to focus on one novel at a time and finish it. And if you get distracted by some other shiny object, it's clearly a sign there's something wrong with the novel or something wrong with you. And I think that's bullshit because I work on four or five manuscripts at a time. And they all get done, and I finish them, and then I sell them, and they win awards, so screw you establishment. (laughs) Uh, 
So the as for which one I work on, um, I do. I'm very good about making my deadlines for the most part. I don't do the panicked worked at the last minute. And you can't write a novel at the last minute. Uh, you'll die. So, like Truth. it, like it is physically not possible. You can't. I probably there's someone who can type a hundred thousand words in a day and have them be coherent, but it really doesn't work like that. Uh, you get people like. Um, uh, Ian Fleming, who right. wrote the Bond novels over his uh, holidays, basically. He would take two weeks, he would go to the beach, he would go for a swim, he would go inside, he would write on the Bond novel, and he would do this every day for a couple of weeks. He would have a Bond novel, he would send it off and publish it, and he just wrote for like two weeks a year. But they were short books. They were. And... uh so and great, he had a method that worked. So my process, I want to say is a disclaimer, is the one that works for me, not necessarily for anyone else. Uh, but really, it's whichever one I know what happens next. At the moment, I am working on a book for Tor that is nearly done. I am working on the sequel to Paladin's Grace. Uh, and those are the two primary ones. I have a couple others that are sort of drifting in and out. Um, I and I just keep their windows open, their Word document windows like down minimized. And if I think of something, I pull them up and write. Sometimes I get a, you know I'll throw a hundred words down. Uh, I have the sort of thing that might be interesting with the medieval coroner in the house full of death traps who is trying to figure out how to stay alive through the house by analyzing how each of the corpses died and what trap killed them. I missed that one. Orange. Uh, That's fine. No, it'll be fine. It'll be a fluffy romance. No, I was, I was talking about Orange stepping on, oh, on oh. one of the switches over here. Yeah, yeah. It controls uh, audio outputs from things. Do we need to stop and re-listen to this? No, it's fine. Okay. Uh... Yeah, the um, uh, it should be fascinating when it comes out. I hope it might be a little dark, but my fluffy romances are often weird and terrible and dark, and that's okay. The I have the next Sword Heart book, oh, also yeah. minimized in a window. Sometimes I think of that one. That one's a little blocked up. I don't know for whatever reason that one's hard to write. Uh, but yeah, um. Yeah, and I know I have to get X amount of words done, so frequently what I will do is, uh, even if it's not a thing, if I'm super excited about a project, I just work on it, because super excitement about a project is a limited commodity, and you can always make up the time somewhere else, follow the enthusiasm while you have it, goddammit. Right. Uh, but frequently what I'll do to determine if I'm like, okay, tomorrow, I know, for example, that tomorrow I... Have to work on. I don't actually have to work on the fairy tale book tomorrow. I could just work. On, I could work on uh, Istvan's story, the Paladin story tomorrow. So if I decide I want to do that tonight, as I am laying in bed trying to fall asleep, and my brain is going fifty million miles an hour, uh, but I will eventually fall asleep probably within an hour with my CPAP on, as opposed to like when I used to stay up till three a.m. with my brain running. Uh, I will ask my brain what happens next for Istvan and 
my brain will usually oblige unless something is really bothering me and it's like, nope, we're obsessing about uh, how to get plumbing to dog school tonight. Fuck you. In which case, right, uh, yeah. uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm in for the long haul there. But if I'm just having a standard night, I'm just like, so they're currently at this inn and I need to get them to the bandit attack. What happens between now and then? And my brain's like, yep, let's go. And then it's the little internal narrative voice that does all the anxiety thinking um, switches over and starts telling me everybody's dialogue. Fast. Okay. Now, uh, that's This one also of, works in showers. Yeah. The, the other thing – that explains the long showers. The other thing – I take very quick showers. You I do. grew up in Arizona. Uh, you fair. don't waste water, man. When I get your early drafts. Yes. I'm one of the few people who gets those. I notice that you are a pantser. <laughs> As it is often said, you are writing by the seat of your pants, but there will be... There have been noble efforts to rename pantsing to discovery writers. Um, I liked gardeners. Uh, <laughs> obviously, I would, but it's uh, I have some vague outlines of what the plot will do, right. but what actually grows is not necessarily up to me. But yeah. and, and often there will be... You can see these, here's an idea or a plot piece... But it's way ahead in the book. There will be these gaps. I will literally write the word gap. Right. Or stuff happens. Or, and at least three frustrating cases. And everything turns out okay. That was the entire bit after, like, some sort of cliffhanger thing. And I... I oh, that was Summer in Orcus. I had gotten, like, 40,000 words in and then wrote... Uh, it all works out <laughs> and handed it to you. And, and, and the like... first time, the first draft I saw of Minor Mage. Oh, yeah. And there was, the, yeah, hand wavy stuff happens, obviously, blah, blah. And I'll like write notes to myself, like, oh, what if maybe the. Sometimes it'll just be, oh, what if this happens? Or, uh, right. Because frequently I don't know. Or uh, if I know something, like in Minor Mage, long before I got anywhere, I was like, the people he's going after are cloud herders. They ride sheep that are also, or they raise sheep that are also storm clouds, and the wool is like rain. And they tattoo themselves with glowing blue milk. And I, like, wrote that in as a yeah. note at the end. Because I knew that much about it. A lot of it, though, comes down to how do you decide what pieces when you're doing that go where? Other than, you know, this is obviously the beginning and this is obviously the ending. And then you have to build the glue uh, in between these pieces of story i think of it like um landmarks mm -hmm. i have a I, I have a very crappy map okay i don't even have a map if i had a map <laughs> that would be that I, I would be a plotter if i had a map yes uh but what i can do is i know i have to get over to there and if i look across if i am from my position as writer I am standing at a high place, and I look across the landscape, and I'm like, okay, that big rock over there, I'm going to aim for that big rock. And the big rock is a point in the plot, that okay. where I, where, or a scene that I have written where I know something happens. Like, um, uh, when I was writing uh, Sword Heart... Well, hello, Beamer! Hi! A border collie has just come in. Uh, hi, hi, Beamer. Yes, hi. We're are, very hi, good. Okay. Uh, I will uh, I will aim for this landmark. A digger, I did that a lot. Mm -hmm. I would. Uh, I knew, for example, at some point they had to get to this ruined monastery, 
And, okay, so I'll aim for that landmark. I knew that at some point uh, they would go down and, and Ed would have his big scene. Okay, so I aim for that landmark. Some of them are very minor-seeming. Um, or, no, that's not quite right. Uh, not landmarks, but characters that I know go somewhere. Right. Like uh, Hearn, the guide who had a deer's head. I knew he went somewhere. It might not have been the right book. Like, I didn't know if he went and digger, but it seemed like he did, so that was fine. I have characters that I have been trying to shove into a book for 20 <laughs> years. Uh, and in fact, I wrote Summer and Orcus uh, because I had all of these things that clearly had to go somewhere and I had nowhere to put them. And, uh, so the, the, and I've been, this is, this is the book where I shove all the things that don't go anywhere. Um, I didn't get the hummingbird that drinks blood and somewhere I will get the goddamn vampire hummingbird in. And this is, so yeah, that's, that's the interesting question or not the interesting thing. You, if, if something doesn't fit, you don't just throw it away. You, you kind of file it off to the side and say, this goes somewhere. It's just not here. Oh yeah, I, I I call it idea mulch. I uh, <laughs> uh, and if I ever write a book about writing, it will be called idea mulch. Um, I can picture the cover. I will. Uh, I just grab the uh, the thing and pull it out it's and go shove it off to one side. And about half the time, and it's really more like a compost heap than mulch. But uh, I I can pick it up Please again. Please excuse the cat sneezing. It's... She's got the coronavirus. She does not. <laughs> She's probably starting to get the seasonal allergies. Yeah, probably. But, uh, right. I, oh, um, sometimes, sometimes I can take things apart for scrap. Like, uh, like the, that's the mulch thing. They break down and I'm like, okay, I don't need this whole character as I envisioned them, but I can take this relationship or this trait or this interesting idea um, and I can put it in over here. Uh, sometimes they stubbornly refuse it. Like, the blood-drinking hummingbird wants to be a blood-drinking hummingbird and I am going to have to find a home for him one of these days. Now, when you do this, do you just have, like, word docs scattered about with these picture things or are they living in your head until such times you can get them into the story uh both okay. um some of them are sufficiently vivid that they live in my head like the uh the woman who turns into a white deer is uh is sooner or later i gotta I, and and sometimes what i will do is i will put throwaway references to these characters in books uh, there's, uh, there's a passing reference to her, I think, in Summer Norcus. Um, and it doesn't go anywhere and doesn't do anything, but then when you eventually write the other book and people who have read all your work see it, they're like, wow, she planned this so far in advance. No, it just was shit kicking around in my head forever. Uh. It's, it's, in, in, what you're saying is it's like some of the dressing pieces that I've tried to use with D&D, except... You can't go in depth to that look at that dressing piece, unlike what you do to my D and D group. <laughs> All of the group does this, where I'm like, "Oh yes, here's this room. It's sort of just a little scene," and everybody's like, "Can we get in the room? Can we climb down to the room? Can we interact with the room?" Uh, and you and the NPC, like uh, you poor bastard who made us a a do uh, oh, your your ancient rune priest was a throwaway yeah. bit of local color who was the uh, the. Uh, old priest of the Temple of the Weasel who was rambling and senile, and 
nothing would have happened with him except that he was local color, except that my paladin one day was like, as we were leaving, asked for his blessing because, by God, he served the weasel and we should respect that no matter what. And you were like, uh-oh. <laughs> I, and you went and wrote, wrote him and an, an entire, yeah, I, I I figured out, I had to go and figure out his backstory, maybe not entirely in that sitting, but I at least had to figure out, okay, he has to have some sort of background. Why is he here? What does he, what purpose does he serve in the greater narrative? And he turned out to be a cornerstone of that story. Yes. And, Among other I mean, pieces. Like, you have a taco vendor that shows up in all of our D&D campaigns. No, I wrote up the taco vendor. <laughs> what, was he part of the band that was getting He back was together? part of the band. So, yeah. so the taco, all, I, I, when it came time to say something big was going down, in order to sort of impress how big it was and how interrelated everyone in the party already was, I took a lot of sort of the local color characters and said, Somebody would be like, well, where's the regular taco guy? Oh, he said the band was getting back together. And uh, I think at one point, Gil the Rune Priest was like, looks like I got to get the band back together and then teleport it out. And then it's like um, the uh, Dragonborn Ranger's mom. Like, where's mom? She said something about the band getting back together and the taco guy and... uh, our 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 weird uh, uh, oversexed lich friend Percy and the <laughs> and the the really mellow sort of all seeing druid guardian of the entire area. I need to see my my mentor. He, he, there's just a note that says, "Sorry, the band had to get back together." Yeah, so uh, that. All of it, it's just like I, I had this moment where I could take all of these disparate pieces, some of them created by you guys, some of them created by me, and pull them all together into the bigger story. Right. And the thing is, you couldn't start that at the beginning of the of the campaign. Oh, no. No, no. There's no way. This is all emergent stuff. Like, um, well, hello again, Beamer. Uh, you have to uh, – uh, and a lot of times I also – the landmarks, I also sometimes refer to it as leaving a trail of breadcrumbs. Like, I uh, – and this, this uh, sort of the ultimate test of this, which <laughs> I really did way before I started writing the novels, was Digger because I did not plot it out in advance mm-hmm. and uh, everything was going up live. It was a serial, so everybody was seeing it before I knew what I was doing. So I would leave myself uh, what I it, trails of breadcrumbs, basically, that were a something I could grab onto and use later. And then when you do that, everyone is very impressed. They're like, oh my god, she foreshadowed this in the first five pages. Well, no, I didn't. I just did something in the first five pages that was sort of interesting, and then I could have come back to it. If I'd never come back to it, you would never have remembered it. That's Uh, fair, yeah. uh, uh, Thinky thing. Um, Neil Gaiman talked about this in uh, writing Sandman, was that he – it was the same thing. You're working basically without a net – you can't just go back and change things because everybody's already seen the things. Yes. So, uh, and I think I can spoiler it now because it's been out long enough. That's like 20 years, yeah. Yeah, 20 years statute of limitations expires. Uh, when he was gearing up, he realized that Morpheus' dream was going to die. That was the end of his his story arc, basically, yes. was... Uh, 
being replaced by the next dream. And he let, he was like, there were a couple of outs that I had and I thought about using. And he, one of them is, um, the, uh, the sort of thin places mm-hmm. in one of the stories where, you know, reality is thin. He's like, you know, I had these places where I had left myself an out that I could get to. And Digger, I would leave trails of breadcrumbs for myself and I didn't know what I was doing. Like, the Shadow Child seems like this remarkably well-contained character, people have told me. I literally did not know what was going to walk on the page. I started that page, and the third panel is where I draw Shadow Child, and at panel two, I didn't know what it looked like. I, uh... Yeah. yeah there is... And I think that was a great benefit to me, writing novels, because I have a great deal of confidence in my ability to bring this stuff home and not write myself into a corner. Uh, but part of the trick to that is you leave yourself these, these threads you can grab onto later. These, uh, um, like the, anyone who's bought a car in the last 10 years, I th- at least 10 years, when you open up your trunk, there's that glow in the dark handle. That's the emergency release so that if for whatever reason you get shoved into your trunk, you can pull that and get out. Yeah, and that's an extreme case. I'm I'm thinking more like um uh I'm currently playing Horizon Zero Dawn, and when you're jumping up the cliffs, there are all of these handholds. Right. Uh, well, whoever was going around chiseling handholds did not necessarily know. <laughs> uh, okay, okay, in the narrative, they didn't. Obviously, the game designer knew you have to get from point X to point Z. Uh, we'll give you handholds. But a lot of times you're just jumping and grabbing, and because it is designed that way, there is a handhold. If you're a writer, sometimes you just write handholds into cliffs, and you don't know they're there. And the thing is, no one else will never will ever know that you didn't use that, and that could have been a thing you used. If I had never mentioned the skin lizards writing the names of God in purple ink, again, no one would have noticed I didn't mention it. That's fair. Like, there, there are threads that are all just local color, you know, Kevin talks about how we all, uh, we latch onto the, the taco vendor mm-hmm. or whatever, but he never... Uh, but we don't know all the things we don't look at. Right. That, which you probably immediately forget because they're not important, you know? Uh, but, well, okay, sometimes they are important and we didn't grab onto them and you're very. And it's, angry, yeah, now but, I have to figure out how to get that sort of important piece of information or that plot point. How do I get you there without it look like I'm tying you to the railroad track and driving you there. Yes, uh, and at the same time, sometimes you wind up accidentally giving too much local color, and then you have to be a small child showing his weevil collection to the party. (laughs) It's a thing that happens. Yes. Um, Anyway, process, if you're asking in terms of absolute nitty-gritty, I should say a lot of this is about plotting. Um, Process is I get an idea I go, I write the idea down, and I don't mean like this happened, like, uh, it's not like I'm, okay, Sword Heart book about a woman who falls in love with a dude who is an enchanted sword. When you draw the sword, he comes out. Um, 
the I came up with the idea because I thought Stormbringer in the Elric books was the real victim because he had to listen <laughs> to Elric whine for six books. And, like, no one asks Stormbringer what he thinks. I think at the end of the sixth book, he kind of does say Oh, that. yeah, he yeah. goes on a tirade basically going, I'm so much more evil than you, you pathetic loser. Uh, and honestly, Stormbringer earned it by then. But so I was thinking about, you know, just really exasperated magic swords. And then I was like, okay, you could have a great romance between the exasperated magic sword and uh, the wielder. And so uh, I was like, okay, so that was the idea. I didn't write down words, you know, romance between exasperated magic sword and wielder. I just had this idea. So then I went and I was like, okay. How would that work? All right. Um, and this all happens very quickly in my brain. It's not like I am sitting down. It is happening much faster than I am talking to you about it. Uh, so yeah, the connections and the, the little bits and the hooks and the. Yeah, it's uh, so I'm like, OK, so Hala, that was the woman. Uh, she draws the sword. How does she draw the sword? She's in danger and she draws a sword. Okay, why would she draw? She doesn't know how to wield a sword. Uh, she's definitely not a warrior. So, all right, she's decided to commit suicide by falling on a sword. Why does she need to commit suicide? Her relatives are terrible. And then I basically started at Hala of, you know... Um, I think it, uh, I think I I didn't have the, the name was different then. Uh, Hala of whatever had spent the evening deciding how to kill herself, and so I had the first line as soon as I started the book, and then and the thing is I never even got to the sword in the first two writing sessions because I was like I got to talk about why her relatives are so bloody awful right. that she has to kill herself, and that this is like actually the incredibly logical and sane choice in this moment. And, you know, so, uh, because obviously I do not, you know, for the most part count suicide. So I'm, uh, uh, like, okay, well, I have to write this in such a way that people are sympathetic to this choice. And so then I started there and just went. So, and once I had things going, uh, a lot of it is pushed by dialogue. I could sit and write dialogue all day long. And I love when I can write dialogue because I can get a thousand words out in like no time at all. Just people bantering is really, really easy to write. So then, you know, I had them, okay, they escape from the house. I, basically, I it was like a week and I had sort of vomited out the first couple chapters. And then they have to go somewhere. And that's when things slowed down because, okay, I have to figure out where they go. I don't know where they go. Okay, gap. All right. Then I write some stuff about them being on the road. Okay, because I sort of know they're on the road. Okay, so then I have to figure out why they're on the road, where they're going. And then I write gap. And then I write this other scene. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and some of the gaps persist for months. Like, I just am like, okay, they get from point A to point B. Somehow, don't know. And I will have to go back and rewrite that. I'm working on that for the book I'm writing for Tor right now. I have left a gap at a kid's funeral for months. I will have to go and yep. fill that in in the next week. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, and I also have to write the ending. And also the big 
showdown with the dead king. But anyway, uh, it'll all happen. It'll be fine. It'll, yeah, it'll all happen. I think that gives us a great insight into your process. Uh, do, do we want the practical terms like um, uh, sending it to agents and stuff? No. That's a whole other discussion. I mean, I'm willing to have that discussion if somebody wants to hear about like the point at which I send things to agents. Although it occurs to me, once again, that this may be an idiosyncratic thing, because all of my writer friends are like, well, I wrote this proposal, and I have obsessed over the proposal for two weeks, and I'm like, okay, I write 30,000 words, and then I send it to my agent with a note saying, find someone to give me money to finish this. <laughs> And, uh, um, yeah, about, about your, your, yeah, your method will not apply to everyone. No. And also, I mean, my agent is the person who once called me and is like, Penguin has made us an offer. And I'm like, I think it was Dial who's made us an offer because Penguin yes. would have been too on the nose. And I was like, that's great. There is actually a penguin attacking my shoe. Can uh, just give them whatever they want and we'll accept it. And she's like, right. Okay. Then. <laughs> I was at the aviary. They yeah. have uh, penguins. The penguin was attacking my shoe. It's a, it's a, it is a thing that happens. Uh, my agent yeah. is also used to me. And that, yeah, and we've uh, famously uh, places talked about how you had the most unlikely gotten agent story. You've honestly, I think what happened was my agent was not expecting much and called me up. And I did the thing at her, the, the Ursula thing. Yeah. And she was like, this woman's either genius or an amazing idiot. And I don't know which yet. Maybe if I see some samples, I'll know. <laughs> that's, that's fair. But again, it's, it's in a lot of ways in terms of your career and how you actually do the, the, we'll call it the professional bits. The, when do you send it <laughs> off to your agent? When do you, how do you pitch it to publishers? Well, actually, you kind of don't. That's your agent's job. Uh, there is – I will put the caveat on mm -hmm. that, that yes, it is my agent's job, but it turned out that I knew a bunch of publishers <laughs> and editors at, at publishing houses, and a bunch of them had been wanting my stuff, but because they were being professional and subtle, they were waiting – or okay, no, they weren't being subtle. They were just like – Okay, she will send us something when she thinks she has a good fit. And I'm like, it had not occurred to me to send them anything. And my agent who handles that, for the most part, is a children's book uh, author and whatnot, and, and has has adapted very well to the science fiction side, but did not come into that natively. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. But uh, so... There was, I was like, hey, why don't we, it, uh, at one point I was like, why don't we send this novella to, first of all, I was like, I wrote a novella, I should send it to Tor, they have an open submission period for novellas when they'll look at them unagented, and then I remembered I'd had an agent for about 15 years, and so I was like, Helen, can you send them this thing, they might like that. And she's like, yes, I will send them this thing because that's like the only market for novellas. And so she sent it to them and Tor came back and said, we will take this thing and also buy three other novels. And the editors I knew at Tor were like gloating that they finally had me. And I'm like, you could have asked at any point and you would have had me. Did it not? Oh, was I supposed to initiate that? 
Yeah. Yeah, I didn't. I, I, this is the same short story problem I have. Mm-hmm. For a while, I was, I, I had sent one. No, I hadn't even sent it. A friend of mine commissioned a short story. Like, literally, my buddy Sigrid was like, write me a short story for this episode for this magazine that i just took over please you know i i need something like this and i wrote jackalope wives and it won the nebula and uh <laughs> and then at the nebula party and the thing is i had written like two other stories by then because the lead time's fine and i just kept sending them to sigrid because she bought yeah. my stories and uh then i was at the nebula like after party and the people from uncanny were like you've got to send us some stuff we love your stuff and i'm like oh okay if you want and then I sent them some stuff because they had asked. I didn't want to bother them otherwise, but they had asked, so I sent it to them. And uh, uh, Lynn and Michael, Damian Thomas, by the way, they have been on the show. And those got nominated for Hugo's. I don't think I won anything with those. Didn't uh, wasn't one of them Tomato Thief? Uh, that I think was Apex again. Oh, okay. Yeah, which which won a, a something or other. But uh, and the rocket ship in there. You yeah. Uh, but the thing is, it never occurred to me that my editors would that these editors would want anything from me, and that I would not be just bothering them. And then they started like soliciting that they finally all figured out what the problem was apparently and started actively <laughs> soliciting me for stuff and we're like we're doing a kickstarter we would love a story from you this year and so i would write a story and then i would send it to them with a note that just said i don't know if this is the thing you want if you don't want it i'll write you a different thing and they all always wanted the thing for some reason um yeah, and uh, in retrospect, I have to go write like two more stories, and then now Apex is in my inbox, going, "We would really like a thing," and my buddy Murr is like, "I really want a thing. Please send me a thing." And I'm like, "I sent you a thing." She's like, "Yes, but that was when we were behind a paywall, and it would have won all the awards if it wasn't behind a paywall, and it's all terrible." And I'm like, "Okay, well, I'll send you another thing." She's like, "No, you'll write a brilliant thing, and then you'll give it to Uncanny, and they'll win another Hugo." And I'm like, "Well, I, I could give it to you if you wanted." And uh, <laughs> it's it, but the problem is that I hate to bother people, and so eventually, sooner or later, the entire publishing industry will realize that if they want shit, they just have to ask me for it instead of me, you know, clawing my way through all these other people who are very nice and probably have better ideas than I do. But and this is why I have an agent because you know I hate to bother people. Uh, so uh, there's no moral to that story. I don't know. Anyway, the whole thing about how you have to be aggressively self-promoting to get anywhere, it turns out that if you are sufficiently feckless and, uh, engaging this is not a strategy for that everyone can employ okay, yeah, actually, this is, this is not advice. This is terrible advice. Don't ever (laughs) do this. I'm just saying that I have made a lot of sales because I cornered people next to the hors d'oeuvres and started telling them about hyena genitals. Um, don't. Mm. This is this is the worst advice. I did that to Joe Hill last year. You did. My friend Murr, like, was so appalled. Uh, but anyway, uh, not, I, I not don't... Not that ag- you're listening, but Joe Hill, if you ever want to appear on the show, just drop me a note. It's cool. Uh, Joe Hill, if you're listening, I'm the woman who cornered you and talked about hyena genitals. I'm not entirely sorry, because frankly, why, you would have to be fascinated with that. Who isn't? And then we talked about alligators. But... Uh, uh, my friend Murr is still very embarrassed. So if you ever run into her, please tell her it's cool and you blame me exclusively for it. All right. 
I think that gives us all. I I mean, there's actually some fantastic storytelling advice in there. There's uh, a I hope so. Good window into how you actually get a story from point A to point B. Yeah, and that's kind of. I, what I will say for. on the whole filling in the gaps thing, it becomes much easier once you know the whole shape of the story to fill in the gaps. And a lot of the times, if you thought the gaps were boring stuff, you didn't want to write. Um, and also I, it is fine to write out of sequence. Some people will be like, don't do that. That's cheating. That's the devil. Ignore them. If it doesn't work for them, that's fine. They can't tell you what to do right out of sequence. If you want, uh, <laughs> I do it all the time. Oh dear God. Uh, but the, a lot of times if you weren't that interested in what happened in the gap, uh, the reader doesn't have to be there for it. You can just be like three days later, they arrived at the inn. It had been a long trip and that's usually fine. Yeah. Nothing exciting happened. I, I have written whole paragraphs. That were, honestly, my favorite line for a day passing was time passed like a kidney stone. <sighs> and on that note, folks, we're going to take a little break. And, and when we come back, we're going to wrap up this week. So Ooh. we'll be right back after this. are back uh okay that's me starting a 10 minute timer for the end of show we didn't hit the 45 on the last one i could have kept going but you know we were already in an hour yeah uh thank you for taking some time i know whenever you do these appearances it's a little more stressful than just a usual intro outro thing no this is fine i don't care yeah uh if if that wasn't the information you wanted feel free to write kevin and tell him that no you actually wanted to know about the publishing and when you send it to the agent and how i format in word because i'm happy to talk about all of that that's fair yeah that's fair or the whole thing if you want a step-by-step of how idea becomes published novel down through copy editing and editing and whatnot we can do that too i'm happy to do that it's just that seems kind of boring for some people, and I never know what they want when they when they say, "How do you write a book?" I mean, what what which bit do you want? There's so much. There's yeah. There's a lot of different. How do you be a sysadmin? <sighs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We could we could start with just the. There's so many questions I have to answer first. So, right. Yeah. So, so if there's some bit I didn't cover and you want that covered, write an email. We will get to it in the letters show. I am happy to talk about any of this. I have no trade secrets whatsoever. If I know anything, I will tell the universe. Very true. I am possibly the least secretive person. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. So we need a badge code for this week. Diagnosis? Diagnosis. All right. Works for me. Uh, The other thing I I would like to mention is uh, thanks to a couple of discussions, there are two new badges, special badges you can claim. Oh. The first uses uses the badge code SICKDAY, all one word, 
And that is the I stayed home from work when I was sick badge. Good for you. You deserve a prize for that, damn it. Instead of doing the whole bullshit capitalist, no, I am miserable, but I must go to work or else my corporate overlords will think I am weak and I am letting down the team. The other thing is uh, there is now a meetings badge (laughs) that you get that is literally for going to all of your meetings in a given day. You can go and you can claim this badge with... Uh, all MTGS, A-L-L-M-T-G-S, all meetings. Because <laughs> you deserve a prize for that, damn Oh, it. dear God, yes. I, and it was a joke. It was like, oh, well, uh, somebody said, oh, I have to go to all the meetings. I wish I could get an award for it. And I'm like, I can make badges in about <laughs> three minutes. Uh, and the, the sick day was like, well, as long as I'm here, I'll make a sick day one. And then it was like, well, I guess I should share these with the world. Absolutely. Not just with the the internal chat at work and the one Discord group I'm on. So there you go. Um, and that's that's that. You can go to productivityalchemy.com and read the, pro, the badge how-to and see the little box for entering your badge code. And uh, there's all that. You can also support us financially on Patreon at Ursula V or uh, I made a Kofi, not because like it matters so much now, but in case Patreon decides to bite the dead donkey, uh, which occasionally they, you know, do something so boneheaded. You think that they might be circling the day? Uh, Yeah, I've already heard the thing about now how one payday loans, the payday loans and also that. Because of how they've shifted things, the $1 a month pledge is now basically 50 cents a month. And Which I don't care. That's 50 cents a month I didn't have. It's that they send out a note to all the creators saying, get rid of your $1 pledge because it improves engagement. And I'm like, no, my $1, I love my $1 people. Yeah. These are my friends, you bastards. Quit sucking blood out of them. Yeah, um, yeah. So anyway, uh, Red Wombat mm-hmm. has a Kofi, or Kevin has one directly. Uh, I do. This, this is not particularly intended to complete, compete with Kevin's just for brand lo- you can, you know, you unification. Can, yeah, well, here's, here's the difference. If you buy me a coffee, then you get the I bought Kevin a coffee badge. Yes. There is not a badge for Ursula's. There's not. But, so uh, there you go. But if you hate Patreon and wanted to support Kofi... Uh, I will see in the, uh, I know they can do a monthly support thing. I will see about some kind of, uh, getting the free eBooks tier at some point. Um, but anyway, yeah. Uh, but you don't have to give us money. Honestly, we love you just as you are. And, you and can I, just tell your friends about us. I love the feedback. I love the excitement. Uh, write us on, letters. Yeah. It's okay if you have no friends. Write us letters anyway. I, I love the excitement when somebody's like uh, on Twitter is like, hey, you know what? You should really talk to Kevin about and be on Productivity Alchemy to talk more about this. I, I get all excited about that. I'm like, oh, God, they really love me. And uh, <laughs> occasionally people do follow up with that it's really cool i told the uh, the behavioral screener i was like my husband does a whole podcast dedicated to organization and she looked at me and she was all really and i was <laughs> like yeah i won't swear it was like I, I was like i'm his test subject so for like years it's been the can he find an organizational system Oops. that ursula yeah. will use and it turns out i'm his great failure and uh she's like huh <laughs> And I 
really don't think that behavioral screeners expect me. <laughs> no one expects you. All right. Uh, well, the one thing that she said, a very nice thing. She said that I had lots of insight into how I thought. And yes. she was like, this is very helpful because you have very good insight into things. I'm like, it, it's all that really helps. I'm all, does it? And she's like, oh, yeah, there are lots of people who have no idea why they do anything. And, and like the resignation in her <laughs> voice, I'm like, oh, this is this is a woman who has been trying to tease out diagnoses from people who don't know if they're stressed or what. <laughs> yup. Anyway, I'm getting distracted again. Uh, is so that everything? That's everything. Uh, just uh, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week when we have our letters show. In the meantime... Stay productive. Woo!